In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to you during this time. Could you turn me down just a little bit, late? We ask that you open our hearts to you today. We ask that you would open our hearts to your son, Jesus, and we trust you to train us to live the kind of lives that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I want to start off by talking about a book that was published in the 16th century. Around the time of the Reformation, renowned scientist Nicholas Copernicus published his groundbreaking work on the revolutions of the celestial spheres. So some of you guys are getting excited because you're like, all right, this sounds like science fiction, you know? <laughs> it's just science. Don't get too excited. Um, anyway, at the time, it was widely believed um, that the sun and all other planets revolved around the earth. In other words, that the earth was the center of the universe, right? Um, and Copernicus challenged this notion in this book, presenting evidence that, in fact, the earth... And all other planets in the solar system actually revolved around the sun. And as you can imagine, this theory, which sounds very normal to us now, uh, caused quite a stir at the time. Many in the church, both Catholic and Protestant, and many other renowned scientists um, rejected it. And um, they couldn't fathom the implications of this theory. How could the earth not be at the center of the universe? How could man not be at the center of it all? In time, Copernicus' view prevailed, and this became known as the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution. It was a revolution because it turned all the prevailing notions upside down. <clears throat> the other planets, they don't revolve around the earth. All the, the earth and all the other planets, everything, it revolves around the sun. The central place belongs to the sun. It seems so reasonable to us now, but at the time it was revolutionary. <clears throat> and I think that something like this is at work in the story of the scriptures as well. Right? Um, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. That's, that's the first, first few words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. So, God is the only one there. God is central. God is king. A fancy word for this worldview is theocentrism. A God-centered worldview. Theocentrism. It's a way of looking at reality that puts God in charge. It says he's the author. His commands are true. Everything he does is beautiful and wise and good. The scriptures teach that in the beginning, God created everything, the light, the stars, the water, the land, the animals, and the people. But sometime in our distant past, our human ancestors who were created free began to question the centrality of God. What if the things that God says are not true? What if they're not for our good? What if he's a withholding God? What if God doesn't really love us? And for the first time, instead of trusting our creator, we trusted our fears and our bent desires. 
for the first time we put ourselves at the center instead of God. And the result was anthropocentrism, a man-centered worldview. It places human beings at the top of the heap. It says that reality must conform to our wants, to our desires, to everything that makes sense to us. A man-centered worldview assumes that if it seems hard for us to obey, God must have made a mistake in asking it. Or if we can't understand the reason why God commands something, then it must not be true. If we can't understand the reason, it must not be true. We're not obligated to obey. That's what we say. So on the other hand, a theocentric, a God-centered view of the world assumes that the Creator knows us better than we know ourselves. The Creator is always just and right in everything He does. He's always reasonable in everything that He commands. A man-centered worldview says, how could it be true if I have such a strong desire for the opposite? How could it be true? I have such a strong desire for the opposite. Adam and Eve said, how could, that, how could it be wrong when it looks so good? Right? Alexander the Great said, how can my kingdom be enough when there's another to be conquered? Joseph Smith said, how can one wife be enough when this other woman looks so attractive? Pharrell Williams said, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. My own personal definition of happiness. That must be the truth, right? Now, does God want you to be happy? Of course. But according to God, you're not going to find it in the fruit. You're not going to find it in another wife. You're not going to find it in conquering another kingdom. A God-centered worldview says that there are many wayward desires within me. So I need to learn to keep those desires in check with the Creator's design. It's only in Him that I'll find both true happiness and true flourishing. In brief, a God-centered worldview admits that there's something wrong with our desires. That there's something bent in our desires, while a man-centered worldview thinks that there's something wrong with God's commands. 1,600 years before Copernicus, Jesus arrived on the scene preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God has drawn near. He was announcing a revolution of his own, was he not? But his corrective was much more foundational than just kind of setting the record straight on which created thing revolves around which created thing. Jesus was announcing that God is in fact king, has always been king, will always be king. It was a theocentric revolution. And somehow, through Jesus, the new Adam, God would show the world once and for all that God is at the center and that love is at the center because God is at the center. Please turn with me, if you would, to your gospel reading from Luke 17, 1 through 10. In this passage, Jesus presents a very God-centered view of the world. He has a very God-centered view of sin, a very God-centered, a very God-sized view of forgiveness. 
When the apostles are resistant, Jesus is not afraid to remind them that God is the master and they're his servants. And in the end, we'll see that God himself is the servant king. So beginning with verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. This is Jesus's honest evaluation of a fallen world. He says temptations to sin are sure to come. You know, the, the, the metaphorical and literal billboards are just, they're going to keep coming at you guys, you know. Materialism and lust and gluttony and store up your treasures on earth. We can't trust every wayward desire of our hearts. And Jesus had to deal with all of this when he came in the flesh. Scripture said he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so we don't have a right to a temptation-free life. That's a lie we tell ourselves. Humility is not insisting that we deserve any better treatment than Jesus deserved. Temptations to sin are sure to come, Jesus says, but woe to the one through whom they come. So in other words, temptations are going to flow, but don't let them flow through you. Don't become a channel of sin and temptation in the lives of others. The Greek word for temptations here is scandala. That's, that's where we get our English word scandal. And at this time, it became a synonym with this idea of a stumbling block, like a, like a rock that gets in your way and it trips you up. It makes you fall. Bible commentator William Barclay says, Jesus said that it was impossible to construct a world with no temptations, but woe to the man who taught another to sin, who took away another's innocence. Friends, do you realize that being an agent of temptation is the way of the devil? That's the way of the devil. That's satanic. That's what Satan's been doing from the beginning. He's shown no regard for the sons and daughters of God. He sought to trip them up to be an agent of their downfall. C.S. Lewis says that the trick of the devil is to say, assert yourself and you'll become more like God. But in asserting ourselves, we actually become his slaves. That's the way that it works. And so punishment for collaborating with the devil and tempting others is quite severe. Jesus pronounces this. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now that's, that's pretty severe. Jesus compares two different kinds of stones and two different body parts. And he says, better to drown with a millstone around your neck than to become a stumbling block for the feet of other people. That's some pretty, pretty raw imagery there. And so, friends, I ask you, are you engaged in some activity, legal or illegal, that's causing temptation and sin to happen in the lives of others? Something that promotes the defilement of human beings? If so, Jesus warns you to turn from this, to repent go back. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. This is a sort of a paradigmatic story of temptation, the story of Cain and Abel. 
And I think um, in this story, we're sort of meant to see Cain as sort of like an atom on steroids. He embodies anthropocentric man, man-centered man to the fullest extent. In Genesis 4-7, Cain has murder on his heart, and God tells him, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching. It's waiting. It wants to trip you up. It wants a piece of you. Its desire is contrary to you. There's a war going on between your desire and what the right thing to do is. He says, but you must rule over it. But of course, Cain ignores God and he gives full expression to the desires of his heart. I mean, he was just following his heart. So again, we're reminded of the words of Jesus. Temptations are sure to come. But we must resist them. We must stand firm and not allow ourselves to become stumbling blocks for other people. So how should we relate to each other? We're not, we're not called to be stumbling blocks, uh, instruments of scandal. How does Jesus call his followers to relate to our brothers and sisters, to our fellow believers? He mentions two things. First, we're called to point others to the truth. Second, we're called to be a community of radical forgiveness. So first, we're called to point others to the truth. Rather than tripping up our brothers and sisters, Jesus says we're meant to do the opposite. We're meant to remind people who they really are, to point them to the truth of God who knows and loves them better than they know and love themselves. In Genesis 4, when the Lord confronts Cain for murdering his brother Abel, he asks him a question, as the Lord often does when he confronts people. He says, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? The Lord knows where he is, but he's confronting him with with the evil desires of his heart. And Cain responds with insolence, he says. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So Jesus, thousands of years later, answers Cain's question here. He essentially says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Luke 17, 3, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, that is, if a fellow believer in the body of Christ brother or sister sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In the body of Christ, no man is an island. To be a Christian is to live with open lives before God and before each other. As the Apostle John says, we're called to walk in the light. That's the Apostle John's imagery. We're called to walk in the light. That's one of the favorite phrases of the East African Revival. So Jesus' vision of kingdom community is not that we be tripping each other up, but that we be calling each other higher, right? Not that we'd be agents and channels of temptation, but we'd be agents of sanctification in the lives of one another. Calling each other to be who we really are in Christ. That's the first thing. Second, we're called to be a community of radical forgiveness. How many times are you obligated to forgive a brother or sister who sins against you? As many as three times? That's what the rabbis taught at the time. They, they had a saying. They said, if, if one forgives one three times, he's a perfect man. 
So it was considered to be a big deal if you were willing to go that far. I think that would be a big deal in our day too, wouldn't it? I mean, when the gospel reading was being read, I heard one of the children ask their parents, did he say seven times? <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to do seven times. Seriously, seven times in one day, someone wrongs us and then turns around and says, I repent and we must forgive them. But it's even worse than that. Because in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus goes so far as to say, I don't say to you 70, seven times, excuse me, but 77 times. In other words, there's no limit to the forgiveness that we're called to extend to our brothers and sisters. You know, there's only one place in the Bible, one other place in the Bible where the number 77 occurs. And it's right uh, in the story of Cain and Abel. It's right after what, what we read this morning. We're given his family's genealogy and one of Cain's ancestors, and they're, they're all really bad dudes, but one of them named Lamech is said to be especially evil and he boasts about his lust for revenge. He says in Genesis 4.24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. That's what he says. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And if you think about it, revenge is, is sort of the opposite of forgiveness, is it not? The spirit that accompanies revenge is like the opposite of forgiveness. But in Christ, we find a new Adam. We're given a new family tree. Yes. Jesus talks to his apostles and he says that their propensity to forgive should match even the most wicked man's lust for vengeance. Some of you may remember back in 2006 when a truck driver named Charlie Roberts entered an Amish school in rural Pennsylvania. And he was unprovoked, but when he entered the schoolhouse with a gun, he killed five schoolgirls' lives before taking his own life. And um, when his mother, we don't oftentimes think of these, these murderers and these killers, we don't oftentimes think of their, their mothers, you know. When his mother heard what had happened, uh, she decided that she was just going to move out of town. And, um, but members of the Amish community came to her house um, even some of the parents of the victims that night came to her that night after the night of the shooting and told her that they wanted her to stay. And then they shocked her even further a few days later by showing up at her son's memorial. In response, the mother was quoted in the local newspaper. She said, there are not words to describe how that made us feel that day. For the mother and father who had lost not just one but two daughters at the hand of our son, to come up and be the first ones to greet us. Wow. Is there anything in this life that we should not forgive? That's what she said. Is there anything? I mean, in light of the unbelievable, the unfathomable forgiveness of this community, she said, is there anything in this life that we should withhold forgiveness for? Friends, the gospel unleashes the power of God in our lives. We're called to forgive not just three times, but seven times in one day. Not just seven times, but 77 times. 
the apostles are blown away by this teaching. They say in verse 5, increase our faith. <clears throat> in other words, <clears throat> we're going to need a little bit more from your end if you're going to expect <laughs> us to do this, right? <clears throat> and it's easy to see why the apostles would react this way, isn't it? Because this kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. But this kind of forgiveness is a reflection of the very gospel itself. And it's ultimately for our good. Our grudges that we nurse, our old wounds, they poison us. The Alpha Course, uh, in the Alpha Course, we're taught that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person gets sick. That's the effect of unforgiveness, the futility of it. I remember when I was in high school, my friends and I had a, a, a basketball coach, and uh, we really hated him. Uh, he, was a, he was a very, very harsh, very exacting coach. He would sort of pit us against one another, and, um, you know, we never won any games. <laughs> I mean, we won some, but... Um, and for three years, I played under this man, but my, sen my senior year, I decided to quit the team. And, uh, I mean, part of it was because there was a cute girl in the play, in the school play, that anyway, I'm talking about my wife. <laughs> P.S. But before I graduated, I wrote the athletic director a letter just enumerating the many terrible qualities of this coach and how he was ruining everything. And um, I wanted to make sure that it was, like, on the record, you know? And... Um, and, and, and the sad thing is that even after I graduated, and a few years later he was fired and everything, and a few years after that, man, it still had a hold on me. It was still with me, you know what I'm saying? You know what that's like? I, I, I remember my friends and I, we used to still tell stories about him, and um, sometimes I would have bad dreams. I would have these like mini nightmares where I was like at practice or in a game, and I was just so frustrated with him. And we were, there was just beef between us. And I remember um, when I was uh, in the middle of college, the Lord was really at work in my life. And I woke up one morning from one of those dreams. I think I'd had like two over the course of that week. And I was like, man, I got to forgive this man. I, that thought had never occurred to me that I, that I had issues with unforgiveness toward him. And the Holy Spirit put that in my, in my mind. I said, I got to forgive this man. And I remember thinking, that very notion sounded impossible to me. I mean, this was not a heroic moment. This was not the Amish community, right? But my, my flesh recoiled at the very idea of forgiving this man. Why should I forgive this man? This was an act of injustice. He was wrong and he wronged me. You know what that feeling's like, right? When somebody wrongs you, it puts them in your debt, and in a twisted way, it feels sort of good to sort of nurse that debt, you know? To sort of nurse that grudge, to pet it, to feed it little chips. <laughs> and on the other hand, if you intend to forgive, you're making a decision to some extent to bear the pain of that injustice yourself, are you not? I mean, if you forgive somebody a financial debt, who eats the cost of that? You do, right? There's a cost to forgiveness. If someone's sinned against you in the past or present and owes you, man, it, it, it hurts to forgive them. Doesn't it hurt? I mean, it's almost like a physical thing. 
seemed impossible, but in light of the gospel, it wasn't impossible. Because I was coming to know that Christ bore pain. He bore the stripes for my sins. So I remember just the moment of release and just praying, Lord, help me to forgive this man. Help me to wish his good. Help me to have a heart of love toward him and desire his well-being. And you know what? The dreams, they just stopped like that. It was just that there was a spiritual exchange that happened and the dreams just stopped. They never came back. Now that victory didn't come about as a result of my great faith. I can tell you that. It came about as a result of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, in other words, if you just had the smallest amount, right? The smallest amount of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, you know, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Jesus is all about things flying into the sea in this passage. (laughs) You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. See, Jesus is trying to replace our man-centered, debt-accumulating worldview with one that's radically gospel-centered. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf writes, Forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. When I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. In other words, when, when we are dealing with unforgiveness, it's, it, it, we're, 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 we're taking on God-like qualities in our minds. We begin to act like we're the judge. We're the master, right? We're the sort of banker of all the debts against us. And people need to answer to us. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. You know, it's, it's easy to disconnect this little parable about the master and the servant from Jesus' teaching on forgiveness that comes directly before it, but it's all part of the same conversation. The apostles are like, man, Lord, increase our faith. This stuff about forgiving seven times, this is very difficult. And in this parable, Jesus is like, hey, who's the boss here? <laughs> who's the boss? I tell you how many times this is appropriate for you to forgive. Now, we, we're like, hold on a second, man. I'm not used to Jesus paying this, playing this card, right? <laughs> but what's he playing it for? He wants them to understand the gospel. It's critical, right? He says, will any one of you who has a servant, but, you know, put yourself in my shoes, all right? If, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come in at once and recline at the table? In other words, does the servant cease to be the servant just because he's finished half the job? Can we say to ourselves, I've forgiven three times, I'm cool. No, three times. That's not the way it works. Tim Keller summarizes these verses saying, the problem with acting like a Pharisee and withholding forgiveness is that you're a servant acting like a king. This parable sounds kind of harsh, but in the context, it's about the Lord's command to show grace, grace and mercy. Jesus continues, will the master not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. In other words, do the whole job. 
Do everything that I've asked you to do. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. That's the way it's supposed to work. Verses 9 and 10, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus is saying, when we think we're justified in withholding forgiveness, we're actually losing sight on who God is and who we are. Right? There's been some kind of self-deception that's snuck in. We think that the sun revolves around the earth. But when, re- when we release someone from their trespasses, Jesus says, it, 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 is, it isn't because you're their master, it's because of your understanding that you're my servant. And that's the way of Jesus. Our perspective, according to Jesus, should be to say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, we have no value in God's eyes or that God wants us to have like a low self-esteem. I mean, just a chapter and a half ago, the father's waiting on the porch for the son to return. The father's heart is very big for us. But N.T. Wright says, saying we're not worthy of anything doesn't mean that we lack a proper sense of self-worth and self-love. It just means that we constantly remind ourselves of the great truth. We can never put God in our debt. He can never put God in it. He never owes us anything. Jesus' point is that the kind of forgiveness, this kind of forgiveness that he's talking about is not impossible if you look at it from the proper perspective. If you have even the smallest dose of reality as it really is, a mustard seed of faith, you'll be able to obey what currently seems impossible. Tim Keller powerfully connects the gospel with our ability to forgive. Let me read you what he wrote. He says, The only way to get out of the incongruity of servants acting like kings is to see the beauty of the king who became a servant. You'll never be long-suffering, he says, until you see him going to the cross to suffer for you. You will never be able to forgive other people their little tiny debts towards you until you see him dying on the cross to pay your great debt. You'll never stop being a judge, putting yourselves in the judgment seat till you see the real judge of all the universe getting out of the judgment seat, coming down, going to court, being condemned, being tortured, being killed out of his great love for you. See, that changes us. Jesus says if you understand the gospel, just a grain of mustard seed of the gospel, that's enough to help you forgive in ways that seem impossible. Friends, the gospel supplants our man-centered narrative and puts God back in the center in the most glorious way. It's a theocentric revolution. It reminds us that we're not the master, we're servants. It reminds us that we're not the judge. We're forgiven. But though we're servants, we've been called sons. And Jesus died for us, not because we're at the center. That's not why he died for us, because we're at the center of the universe. No, he died because God is at the center of the universe, and God is a servant king, full of love and grace and truth and mercy. Toward all that he has made. Amen.